0: Last week, (laughs) last week what we did, we talked about how Jesus was addressing the crowds. Uh, John's disciples had come to Jesus and they had a question for him. Are you the one or should we be looking for another? And so he addresses their questions and then he says, Listen, go tell John what you see. And so he addresses their questions. He does a bunch of miracles right in front of them and says, Take that message back to John. What happens is they go back. And Jesus starts addressing the crowds because John has this question. Unless they start wondering about John, he says that John was the greatest born of women. Not only does he commend John, but he also gives him this incredible uh, title um, the best, the, the most greatest man ever born of women. And what that means basically is that John was the greatest that had ever been naturally conceived of the flesh, right? Because Jesus was born of the Spirit, and I wouldn't ordinarily have to make that... Um, you know, clarification, but there's so much confusion in the church today that I just want to let everybody know where we stand on it. And it shouldn't even be an issue because if the Bible says it, then that settles it, and that's what we agree on. So um, that's what he meant when he said John was the greatest born of women. And then John was a man of conviction, right? He didn't just have a preference for Jesus. He had a conviction about Jesus. Preferences come and go. We become very fickle with our preferences because they can be affected by our external circumstances. But conviction is something that you purpose in your heart. It's not something that will change. It's not going to change based on your external circumstances. It's not going to change no matter what. And so, Regardless of what happens in our life with preferences, convictions is something that you will not break, something that you would die for, right? Something you would die for. Preferences wilt in the fire of affliction, but convictions are things that never change. So John was a man of conviction. He was also a man of self-denial. Uh, I called the message "the greatness of humility." And self-denial and humility are in very short supply in our culture today. Uh, but John was willing to forego all the comforts of this life, to bring glory to the God to God as much as possible in pointing people to the Messiah. And the writer of Hebrews writes it this way. I thought it was really good. He's talking about Moses, but I really believe it describes John's life as well. It said Moses, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward." And that was John's mission. It wasn't to carve out a life for himself here on earth. It was to prepare people for the arrival of the Messiah, to point people to Christ. He was looking forwards to the reward. Jesus is the reward. He's our reward. And that required absolute submission to the Father's will. And that's exactly what John was. He was completely surrendered to God's will and fulfilling his mission. And he arrived at a very crucial time between his time and Jesus' time divided the old testament from the new testament so his unique place in history along with his complete submission to the lord and his fulfilling his ministry made him the greatest of all men and he came in the spirit and power of elijah uh, full of fire Uh, and fire in the scriptures speaks of two things speaks of judgment but it also speaks of purification and so john went around calling people to repentance repent of your sin because the kingdom of heaven is at hand And if you don't get right with God, there's going to be judgment. And then purification, he was calling people, be baptized. Be baptized with water symbolically that your cleansing of your sin may happen through that. Now, that was symbolic. It wasn't going to happen until Jesus died on the cross, but it was symbolic pointing to, again, the Messiah and what he would do. So judgment, but then also purification. And then lastly, we talked about how Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force. And it has two equally um, two equally weighty meanings. The first is pretty obvious. The, the church, the people of God, are under attack. Wherever the kingdom goes, people are going to attack it. Demonic forces are going to come up against it violently. And the kingdom will suffer violence until Jesus comes to take us out. Right now, his body, his bride, is being abused on this earth. And sometimes you'll hear people say, well, we just think that the church is going to go through the tribulation. It's going to go... Why would God do that to his bride? His bride has been being persecuted since he left, and he's going to come back and he's going to take us out of here so his bride can be rescued as God's wrath is being poured out on a Christ-rejecting, unbelieving world. It's my personal belief. And I think I'm right. That he's going to take us out of here. That's not going to happen. So it will suffer violence until then. The other meaning is that God's kingdom is vigorously pressing forward. It's vigorously advancing against the attacks of the enemy. And people that want to enter the kingdom have to do so forcefully and purposefully. Okay? Now, we're very fortunate to be born here in the United States. But nobody ends up in the kingdom of heaven by chance. Does not happen. Everybody has to make a decision, a very decisive action to be in the kingdom of heaven. You don't get in by accident, okay? You don't get in on your lineage. You don't get in on your works, the things you do for him. Nobody gets in by accident. You don't even get in because you go to church on Sunday. You get in because you put your faith and your hope in Jesus and you have a relationship with him. There's no room for apathy in the kingdom. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. There's plenty of apathy within the church and there's all kinds of indifference outside the church. Apathy and indifference. But there's no room for indifference in God's church. Last week I mentioned that the Greek word for the devil is diabolos, okay, which means slanderer. The devil's a liar. He's a slanderer. He is telling lies about you and I all the time. And Jesus is just the opposite. He says, I am the truth. The devil's a liar. He's been so since the beginning. I'm the truth. Bible tells us that God is love. So what is the opposite of love? Now, many of us would be tempted to say that hate is the opposite of love. Okay? But hate is not the opposite of love. Indifference is the opposite of love. Just saying, I don't care. I don't care. That is the opposite of love, indifference. So I'm calling this, what's the indifference? So what's the difference? It doesn't matter. I don't care. What's the indifference? Okay, we got a lot of ground to cover. So let's pick it up in verse 16. We're going to make it all the way through chapter 11 today, hopefully. But to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces calling to their playmates We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating or drinking, and they say, he has a demon. And the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they said, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works And at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by the Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and I'm lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So verse 15, the last verse of the previous section that we talked about, Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Okay, now that sounds like a strange saying to us because we don't really differentiate between hearing and listening. Okay, but there's a big difference between hearing and listening, all right? Because it's, it's engagement, right? You can hear things and not listen. You guys, you've probably heard it. You might be hearing me, but you're not listening. You're not getting it. The phrase that Jesus uses says, listen up, take it seriously. It demands a response. Not just hearing the words that are coming out of my mouth, but taking action upon it. That's what that phrase means. You'd better pay attention. And you'd better work it out in your life. Jesus says this, and he's already given overwhelming evidence to these people that he is the Messiah. And a lot of them still didn't believe. A lot of them still didn't do anything with it in light of the fact that Jesus had given them all this evidence. And I find it incredible that people could witness these miracles and his teaching and not believe. Either themselves or from other eyewitnesses that were telling them about it. And Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies while he was here on earth. 300, with more to come, by the way. Not all of them have been fulfilled, but 300. There's been lots of a math applied to the probability of somebody fulfilling these prophecies, and it's, it's incredible. I've read all kinds of stuff on it. I'm just, I just choose one, okay, that I read earlier this week. The probability of Jesus fulfilling just eight prophecies just eight let's see if we can name eight (laughs) son of abraham son of isaac son of jacob right born of a virgin born in bethlehem of the tribe of judah that he was going to be betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver that he was going to be crucified pierced whipped all of these right just some of 300 that he fulfilled the statistical probability of one man fulfilling just eight of them is 10, one in ten to the seventeenth power. Okay? That is a one with seventeen zeros behind it. That is the statistical probability of just eight. So you can see it gets astronomical from there, and yet some people don't believe. But this is how much people choose not to believe. I was listening to a sermon this week by Paul Washer, and if you want to listen to something that will sober you up real quick, you can go listen to a Paul Washer sermon. But he was talking about this. We, we tend to think of people in hell that are being tormented, that are being tortured. We tend to think of it like this, that if Jesus himself were to condescend to the gates of hell and kick them open and tell all those people that are being tormented, come to me, Repent and come to me. Submit to me and live. We tend to think that all those people would run for the doors. And they would run for the doors. But they would slam them in Jesus' face. Okay, that is how much they choose to reject Jesus. They would rather be tormented in hell than submit themselves to Jesus. We find it incredible. So what do they do? People who are unbelieving. People who reject Christ become critical. They become very critical. Jesus said, but what shall I I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplace calling to their playmates. We played the flute, you didn't dance, we sang a dirge, and you didn't mourn. There are some people who will find fault with anything. It doesn't matter. They're going to find fault with whatever you do. They just seem to throw a wet blanket over everything, okay? Does anybody know people like that? Don't raise your hand. People that are critical, and they criticize the church, they find fault with whatever the pastor does, with whatever church leadership does, they just want to point things out and just be criticizing and full of unbelief. Back then, the marketplace was the place to be, okay? That was where everything was happening. And you would have kids in the marketplace, and they would be playing, running around, and kids then were really no different than kids today, okay? They liked to play and mimic the things that they saw adults doing, right? Which is cute but also dangerous, right? When they're mimicking things that adults are doing. And so the things that they would mimic, I mean, there wasn't a lot going on that day. So when people had weddings, right? It was a pretty big deal, these social events. Weddings in that culture were a celebration. They were a party. There was food. There was feasting. There was music. Sometimes it would go on for days. Okay, so big social events, and it was probably mostly the girls, that would pretend to play wedding, right? And they would pretend to play music, and they would dance around silly. So that's what he's talking about. And funerals. Funerals would be a major production as well. Okay, probably the boys because we're kind of, you know, weird like that. Probably playing funeral. And uh, because if you remember when Jesus went to raise Jairus' daughter, he went to his house as he had run to Jesus to ask him for help. And by the time they got to his house, there were already mourners and musicians outside the house playing because she had died. And they had to have a certain amount of mourners and a certain amount of musicians to announce to people that they were sad. And Jesus arrives and he puts them out and he says, get out of here. She's not dead. She's only sleeping. And it says that they laughed at him. I think the King James says they laughed him to scorn. And that always confused me. I'm like, how can these people who are mourning, who were crying, laugh at Jesus? It's because they weren't authentic. They had been hired. They were actors. And the kids would mimic that as well. Jesus saying, it doesn't matter what we do. You're not going to like it. James or John came along. He wasn't drinking wine. He had a weird diet. Okay. He lived out in the desert. You guys thought that he had a demon. I come along. I'm eating. I'm drinking. I'm going to the social events. I'm going to the parties. I'm a friend of publicans, right? And sinners, publicans and Democrats. No, no, publicans. Back then, the tax collectors were called publicans, tax collectors and sinners. And you call me a party animal. Which is it? John's message and John's way of life were in funeral mode, so to speak. Okay? Some people grew really weary of his message of repentance. And John trying to make them make a choice. They said, he must be crazy. He's possessed. Give it a rest, John. We get it. We don't want to hear anymore. Get out of your funeral mode. And you'll find that people will lash out against and rail against anybody who calls people out of immorality, calls people closer to the Lord. They might find it amusing for a while, but they won't tolerate it for long because John was forcing them to make a choice, pick a side right now. People don't like to have their choices infringed upon. Uh, that's one of the most protected things we have in our culture today. Don't tell me what to do. I'm going to make up my mind on my own timetable, right? Jesus, on the other hand, was in wedding mode. If John was in funeral mode, Jesus was in wedding mode. He was big into weddings. Jesus uses wedding analogies all the time. He did his first miracle at a wedding. He was always going to social events and activities. Remember when Jesus was over at Matthew's house? Right after he called Matthew, Matthew's like, I'm following Jesus. I'm all in. I'm going to throw a party at my house. And he invited all of his sin friends, his sinful friends. And so they all came over. And John's disciples, John the Baptist's disciples, go over there. And they see Jesus. And they're like, hey, why do the Pharisees and their disciples fast? And we fast, but you and your disciples don't fast. What's going on with that? And Jesus told them, he said, listen, when the groom is out walking around and the friends of the groom are with them, they can't mourn. They need to be celebrating. They need to be partying because they're with the groom. Jesus uses that illustration quite a bit. And the symbolism in Jewish weddings is like really cool. I can't wait till we get to that part to explain it to you. But Jesus was in wedding mode. He said, John must have a demon and I must be a party animal. So which is it? You guys are critical of everything. Now, in the midst of being critical, there's an element here that uh, worldly people and even worldly Christians try to take hold of. And it's the fact that Jesus was a friend of sinners. He was a friend of sinners. People point this all the time. They're like, listen, I'm hanging out with these people. Jesus was a friend of sinners. What's wrong with me being around these people? He did reach out to the moral outcasts of society. He did walk into those circles. And what the religious people were trying to do is they were trying to associate Jesus with that wicked behavior. They were saying, listen, he's hanging out with sinners. He must be a sinner. And people today don't try to really associate Jesus with sinful behavior. But what they do is they use this for, they grab onto this verse to try to justify their sinful influences. Right, They put themselves in that situation. They try to justify it by saying, listen, Jesus was a sinner. I'm just hanging out with sinners. Jesus did walk into those circles, not to associate with their sin, but to offer them deliverance out of it. Okay, That's the reason why he went into those situations. That's the reason why he came to earth, to offer forgiveness and salvation to sinful people. Now, most of the time, not all the time, Most of the time, people who use this verse aren't walking with Jesus. And I just put it plainly like that. Because they're walking into these circles, but they're not walking in with Jesus. Because when Jesus walked into those circles, things changed. People were changed. The atmosphere was changed. And so the question we have to ask is, are those people being changed when you go into those situations? Or are you being changed? Are you being influenced? Remember when I said Jesus, whenever he touched somebody who was unclean, their uncleanness didn't pass to him. That's what they believed in Jewish society. If you touched something that was unclean, you automatically were unclean. But when Jesus touched somebody, his purity always transferred over to them. So when he walked into those situations, he brought life into them. He wasn't being pulled down to their level. I used to hear parents say things, um, to me, and to other uh, kids when they were teenagers, are getting out to go out and have fun, and they would say, all right, just make sure that Jesus is having just as much fun as you are, you know, because Jesus is with you all the time. And the kids are like, oh, oh you know. <clears throat> That's right, make sure Jesus is having just as much fun as you are. Are you calling these people up, or are they bringing you down? So the plain fact is that when ungodly people don't want to listen to the truth, they will find all kinds of excuses not to listen. Okay, and with that excuse, they'll have criticism. You Christians, you're not much better than we are. And you know what? They're right. We're not much better than they are. I don't live this thing out perfectly. I don't claim to. Okay, none of us do. But we follow the one who is perfect. All right? We follow the one who is perfect. I'm not asking you to follow me. I'm not asking you to follow the world or the church. I'm asking you to follow Jesus. Okay, follow him. And we try to live that out as best we can to keep to his teachings and bring him glory. That's what we're trying to do. Don't follow anyone else except for Jesus. And he says, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. One translation says, but wisdom is shown to be right by what she does. It'll be proved by what it produces. What does the fruit look like? Are John and I producing righteousness or are we producing wickedness? Right? Righteousness leads to more righteousness. But corrupt human wisdom leads to corrupt human behavior. Kind of stupid is as stupid does, right? That's what it produces. Okay, now Jesus is getting worked up and he says, you want to be critical of us? I've got some criticism for you. And he starts to denounce all these unbelieving cities that where Jesus had done most of his mighty miracles in, the places where he'd healed the lepers, The places where he had healed the mute, opened the ears of the deaf. The places where he had raised dead people back to life. These places, people had witnessed these things and it didn't change them. They weren't repenting. They were simply indifferent. And he's harsher here with the places that saw evidence and did nothing. They simply shrugged their shoulders. That's great. That's cool. Which is what most people do today. And I'll go as far as to say that there's a lot of so-called Christians that just shrug their shoulders at Jesus today. Take it or leave it. I might make it. I might not. I might read my Bible today. Might not. Might not act like a Christian today. Might not. The indifference in some people. Oh, they'll go out to hear him speak. They'll go out to watch him do things, to, associate, to enjoy the benefits of being around Jesus. Right? But there's a harsher punishment for those people because they know the truth and they're apathetic towards the Lord. Indifference really is the most heinous form of unbelief because there's such disregard for Jesus that it becomes not even an issue worth arguing about, not even an issue worth defending. Um, Our son Devin, when he's up at college, was telling me one of his frustrations is that in our culture, we live in such a time where everything is accepted. That's what you believe? Great. Good for you. Here's what I believe, that's what you believe. We're so accepting that there's no, there's no argument, there's no defense for beliefs. And people now, when they talk about Jesus, they're very indifferent about it. It's not something that um, a lot of people want to defend. We need to learn how to defend our faith and take Jesus seriously. He says, Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it'll be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Now, Bethsaida, that's where Peter and Andrew and James and John, that's where those guys were from. That was their hometown. Places, you know, where Jesus had produced these incredible miracles, the evidence of him. And he says Tyre and Sidon, those were pagan cities. They were secular Gentile cities. This was places where the Baal worship was still happening. All kinds of immorality. This would have been like saying, Woe to you, Liberty, right? Woe to you, Excelsior. Because if the works that had been done in you were done in Las Vegas, they would have repented in dust and, you know, in ashes. That's what that would have sounded like. Just to go back to the wedding analogy, um, you've been given a personal invitation by the groom. And instead of opening it and putting it on your refrigerator, you left it in with the rest of the junk mail. You were indifferent towards the Lord. In Matthew 22, Jesus uses this wedding analogy to describe the indifference of the Jewish people. It says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son, and he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. And he sent his servants saying, tell those who were invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen, my fatted calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention. And went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while they seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. And he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those who invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite the wedding feast as many as you can. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. Now, the key here is understanding what the wedding feast represents, okay? The picture given here is the marriage supper of the Lamb. All right, the marriage supper of this is the wedding feast that all believers will celebrate when we're taken out of this world and when we're with the Lord, okay? Seven years, seven year honeymoon with the Lord. While his wrath is being poured out on the earth during the tribulation period. And the invitations to that feast have been sent out now. They've been sent out while we're here on the earth. And we see three groups of people here. The first group, simply indifferent. You know what? I got to wash my car. I got to build that deck. I got to go down to the lake. Simply indifferent. The other group, they were evil. They persecuted the servants. They killed the servants. They were evil. And of course, we would think, well, of course those people were destroyed. They were evil. But both groups, the evil and the indifferent, neither one of those made it to the wedding feast, okay? Indifference and evil is the same because you're not taking Jesus seriously. Both of them end up in a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. So who did the invitations go out to? Really the undeserving, right? You and me, the Gentiles. And I'm so grateful for that. The invitations went out to us so that his house will be full. It says, um, until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, okay? So we're waiting for the last Gentile to get saved. So if you're a Gentile here and you're not saved, you do us all a big favor. Maybe that would be the one, Okay. The last verse in that portion of scripture is many are called but few are chosen. The invitations have gone out to all of mankind. Some have RSVP'd, okay, but very few actually show up. Chorazin and Bethsaida, neither one of those cities exists to this day. They're a pile of rubble, gone in history because of their rejection of Jesus. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works had been done in you that had been done in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it'll be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Jesus had made Capernaum his headquarters. That's where he lived. That's where he launched out of. He said, instead of favor, instead of favor because I was here and walking your streets, there's going to be a harsher punishment because you were indifferent. Because it didn't change you. It would have been better for you if you had never known me than to have me here walking your streets and not do anything about it. This wicked city of Sodom would have repented long ago if it had had the privileges of Chorazin and Bethsaida, the cities that were self-righteous, holding on to a dusty form of religion, a works-based religion. They were more blinded to the Lord's salvation than the pagans were. We in America, we deserve God's righteous judgment because of the evidence that's been presented to us here and because of the status that we have. And yet we have been indifferent towards the Lord. It's just staggering the indifference and the rejection that we see in our society given all of the access, all of the evidence to the Lord. Many see, many hear, but few believe You might say, well, wait a minute, Nathan. Lots of people believe in Jesus. Belief equals action. Okay? If you believe it, then you'll do it. If you don't believe it, you'll become critical of it. That's what will happen. And there won't be any action. The greater the privilege, the greater the responsibility. And the greater the light, the greater the punishment will be for rejection of that light. Now, there's a puzzling truth in this verse, and I don't pretend to understand it, but Jesus makes it clear here that there will be varying degrees of punishment for people based on their access and their knowledge to him. Okay, And I don't know what that looks like, and I don't want to know what that looks like. Okay, There's no comfort in knowing that there's going to be different levels of punishment based on what you did with the words that were given to you. Because the group that gets it worst will be the ones who knew the truth but didn't do anything with it. Those who have received the divine revelation, okay, those who seem to be morally upright but were indifferent towards the Lord. And now you're all in that group. You're all in that group. That's my job. My job as pastor is to put you in that group, okay? It's not my job to save you. It's my job to present the gospel to you. And then you have to make a decision what you're going to do with it now. All of us have the privilege of hearing and knowing the truth. The question is, what are you going to do with it? Will you believe it? Will you let it change your eternal destiny? Will you start following Jesus the way, the truth, and the life? Or will it simply go in one ear and out the other? Because if it does, Jesus says that the punishment for you will be worse than it was for Sodom and Gomorrah. Completely wiped off the map. Okay, we're going to bring this home. Verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the father except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. After answering the questions from John's disciples, doing the miracles, sending them back with the message of reassurance, and then warning the people about their indifference, he gives an invitation. That's what's good about our Lord, right? He gives a warning, and then he gives us an opportunity to respond to it. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. If you're listening to my words, now is the time to take action. Paul writes in his second letter to the Corinthian church, he quotes the Old Testament from Isaiah 49. In a favorable time, I listened to you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Then Paul writes, behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault will be found with our ministry. He says, I am telling you truly, I don't want this to, go. my hands are clean because I have presented the gospel to you and you need to respond to it. Today is the day of salvation. We're not promised tomorrow. That's one of the biggest lies that the enemy tells. You've got time. Okay? Feed your flesh. Live the way you want to now. Okay? You've got time. You're not as bad as those people over there. The lies the enemy tells But Jesus says there's no distinction. There's no distinction between the indifferent and the evil. You're responsible for action once you know the truth. And the last six verses here are so significant. We could do a whole sermon series on them, uh, but I'm not going to. So, Jesus thanks the Father. Thank you, Father, that you didn't make it difficult to understand. Thank you that you didn't make it complicated. God said there's one way. Pretty easy. He didn't say there's 10 ways to get to heaven. I hope you find one of them. There's one way. The people who are proud and self-righteous, they're not going to get it. Okay, those that are wise in their own eyes, they're not going to understand because they're going to think it has to be harder than this. There has to be more to it. It can't be that simple. But those who receive it simply, just like a child, those are the ones that are going to be blessed. All things have been handed over to me by the Father except nobody knows the Son except the Father, to the person who say, well, Jesus never really claimed to be God. Okay? He did in multiple places. But this is one of those places where Jesus equates himself with God. Okay? God the Father. Not in the same sense that God is the Father of Israel. Okay? Not not in that sense. He didn't create Jesus. Jesus is God. He has always been. He always will be. Jesus is God. He was not He was not created. This speaks of, when Jesus calls God Father, this speaks of a relationship, okay, of a role. He is obedient to the Father's will. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they are one essence. They are inseparable. Three persons, right? All God. I don't understand it, but I believe it because that's what the Bible says. Jesus says, all things have been handed to me. That pretty much covers it, right? All sovereignty, all power, all authority have been handed over to Jesus. And because he is completely sovereign, okay, he is the only one who knows who is going to choose him and who's going to reject him. Those are the people that he reveals himself to. The revelation of the gospel only comes through the Holy Spirit. It can't be discovered through human understanding or human discovery There's been so much overwhelming evidence that the Bible is true and that the eyewitness reports of all of the disciples are accurate. They're authentic. And yet the academic world, those who are wise, simply brush it away and say it's all just stories. It's all fables, make-believe. But conversely, the person who sets all their limited human understanding aside, all right, those are the ones who can receive his divine truth. Jesus reveals himself to those people. You might say, Nathan, that doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem fair that Jesus will reveal himself to some and not to others. This is the sovereignty of God, okay? Nobody finds Jesus. You might hear some people say, I found God. Nobody finds God. Nobody finds Jesus. Jesus reveals himself to them, and then they have a decision to make at that point. What are you going to do with it? He chose you, but you also have to choose him. And because he is all-knowing, He knows the end from the beginning. He knows the people that are going to accept him. And he knows the people that are going to reject him. Would you really want to serve a God who didn't know all things? Who wasn't all powerful? Who wasn't omniscient? Because I wouldn't. It wouldn't give me any comfort if God just had a broader perspective of history. And he was learning faster than I was. He was just trying to respond to it. That wouldn't give me any comfort. That wouldn't be a God big enough worth submitting to. Our God knows those who are his. And then Jesus' appeal to the faith, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest from what, exactly? The law of Moses is made up of 613 laws. 613 laws. 365 negative ones. Don't do this. Okay? And then 248 positive ones. Do this. That's a lot of rules to try to keep. You will wear yourself out. In fact, it's impossible to keep all those rules. Paul said that the law is a taskmaster. right? It's a taskmaster. It does everything it can to show us how woefully short we fall of God's righteous standard. That's what the law does. That was the purpose of the law. That's why God gave the law. Only the people who are tired of trying to keep up the charade Trying to earn the favor of the Lord by works, by things that they do. Trying to be good enough on their own. Only those people are humble enough to know that they need a Savior. Rest from worry. Rest from fear. Rest from trying to earn favor from man and from the Lord. Because you've already been accepted by him. If you've accepted him. In the Old Testament, God instituted what they called a Sabbath day. One day a week where they weren't supposed to do any, any work. Right? One day a week. We typically get two days. But back then, God said, take one day. Now, you have to understand, back then, people didn't take days off. Not at all. They worked every day. If you wanted to survive, you worked every day. And God said, I want you to trust me. I want you to take one day out of seven, dedicate it to me. It's going to be holy. Don't do any work. You're going to trust in my provision. And just as everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus, everything in the Old Testament points us to the Messiah. So does this? This points us to Jesus. The Sabbath pointed to Jesus. He is our rest. In Hebrews four, it tells us that Jesus Jesus is our Sabbath. There's a lot of churches. Um, there's a lot of talk in churches about keeping a Sabbath day, uh, having a day where you rest. Right? Um, God did that for a reason. Okay. And I'm going to say something that probably a lot of people would disagree with, and that's okay. Um, God's command of a Sabbath day is an Old Testament law. That was an Old Testament decree, okay? It was part of the law. We're no longer under the law, okay? We're free from all of the external entrapments of the law. Jesus fulfilled the law. So when we accept him as our Savior, you're free from all of that stuff. That's why we get to enjoy pulled pork sandwiches, okay? Because we're free from the law, amen, hallelujah, okay? That's what we're going to do later today. Jesus is the Sabbath that the Father was referring to. He is our rest. Now, before you shout me down, it was God's idea, and it's a good idea. We should take times to be refreshed, to rest, okay? We should take times like that. But like the Seventh-day Adventists, right? They have one day where they do absolutely nothing. I think they're, they're missing the point a little bit and it becomes legalistic because when we're made to feel guilty because we didn't take one day to do nothing, all right, that's the law. That's legalism. We're free from all of that. I'm not saying that rest is a bad idea. Okay. It's God's idea. It's God's idea. So it's a good idea. What I am saying is Jesus is our Sabbath. He is our rest rest from works based religion. I don't have to do good works now, or I get to do good works. And I can do them as worship as unto the Lord because of what he's done for me and my love for him. That's why I do good works. It's not because I'm checking off boxes trying to please him. He says, take my yoke upon me and learn from me. Jesus gives an invitation, and this invitation is to submission. All right, Submission gets a bad rap. Uh, in our society today. But salvation always includes submission because Jesus can't be Lord of your life if you're not submitted to him. That's what a yoke is. A yoke is a symbol of submission. Just like when that yoke was placed on that oxen, it was placed there for the benefit of the master. Okay, So the master could steer and guide that ox exactly where it needed to go for his benefit. So too, you and I, if we really want Jesus to be our master, if we want his guidance, his leading in our life, we have to submit to his leading for his benefit, for his glory. yoke is a symbol of, uh, of submission, but it's also a symbol of obedience. When Jewish students went out to choose a rabbi, they chose a rabbi, a teacher that they wanted to study under. They called that taking that rabbi's yoke upon you. Okay, they wanted to be like that rabbi in every way. They watched the things that he did, the way that he taught, the analogies that he used. They wanted to be submitted to them, but they also wanted to be um, obedient to him. Jesus says his yoke is easy, okay? It's not hard. John MacArthur puts it this way Christ will never oppress us or give us a burden too heavy to carry. His yoke has nothing to do with the demands of works or law, much less that of human tradition. The Christian's work of obedience to Christ is joyful and happy. For, as John explains, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. 1 John five three. Submission to Jesus Christ brings the greatest liberation a person can experience. Actually, the only true liberation that he can experience, because the only um, way that we can experience true freedom and what we were created to be is through Jesus Christ. So take his yoke upon you, right? Let him guide and direct your life. Lots of information we packed in today. Finished out chapter 11. The indifference and the apathy of people towards the Lord, but don't take action on it. see, it's not really that important. C.S. Lewis said, that uh, Christianity, if it's false, is of no importance. But if it's true, it's of infinite importance. The only thing that the gospel cannot be is moderately important. Can't be moderately important. If it's true, it has to be obeyed. It's infinitely important. It is your eternal destination. But if it's false, if Jesus is a liar, none of us should be here. We should be home prepping. Right? If it's false, it's of no importance. Jesus gives a serious warning not to be indifferent toward the gospel. Then he gives an invitation, an invitation to accept his leading. Let him have control over your life, not because he's on some on some kind of power trip, okay? It's because he created you. He created you and he knows what's best for you. That's the reason why he says, "Let me lead you." Check your heart and ask this question, "Have I submitted my life to him in every area of my life? Am I being obedient to what he's asked me to do?